Book Two, Chapter Sixteen of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Two, Chapter Sixteen. The next morning after breakfast, the rectory party were in the garden, the gentlemen smoking, Catherine and her sister strolling arm in arm among the flowers. Catherine's vague terrors of the morning before had all taken to themselves wings. It seemed to her that Rose and Mr. Langham had hardly spoken to each other since she had seen them walking about together. Robert had already made merry over his own alarms, and hers, and she admitted he was in the right. As to her talk with Rose, her deep meditative nature was slowly working upon and digesting it. Meanwhile she was all tenderness to her sister, and there was even a reaction of pity in her heart towards the lonely sceptic who had once been so good to Robert. Robert was just bethinking himself that it was time to go off to the school, when they were all startled by an unexpected visitor, a short old lady in a rusty black dress and bonnet, who entered the drive and stood staring at the rectory party, a tiny hand in a black thread glove shading the sun from a pair of wrinkled eyes. "'Mrs. Darcy,' exclaimed Robert to his wife after a moment's perplexity, and they walked quickly to meet her. Rose and Langham exchanged a few commonplaces till the others joined them, and then for a while the attention of everybody in the group was held by the squire's sister. She was very small, as thin and light as thistledown, ill-dressed, and as communicative as a babbling child. The face and all the features were extraordinarily minute, and moreover blanched and etherealized by age. She had the elfish look of a little withered fairy godmother, and yet through it all it was clear that she was a great lady. There were certain poses and gestures about her which made her thread gloves and rusty skirts seem a mere whim and masquerade, adopted, perhaps deliberately, from a high-bred love of congruity to suit the country lanes. She had come to ask them all to dinner at the hall on the following evening, and she either brought, or devised on the spot, the politest messages from the squire to the new rector, which pleased the sensitive Robert, and silenced for the moment his various misgivings as to Mr. Wendover's advent. Then she stayed chattering, studying Rose every now and then out of her strange little eyes, restless and glancing as a bird's, which took stock also of the garden, of the flower-beds, of Ellesmere's lanky frame, and of Ellesmere's handsome friend in the background. She was most odd when she was grateful, and she was grateful for the most unexpected things. She thanked Ellesmere effusively for coming to live there, sacrificing yourself so nobly to us country folk, and she thanked him with an appreciative glance at Langham for having his clever friends to stay with him. The squire will be so pleased. My brother, you know, is very clever. Oh, yes, frightfully clever. And then there was a long sigh, at which Ellesmere could hardly keep his countenance. She thought it particularly considerate of them to have been to see the squire's books. It would make conversation so easy when they came to dinner. "'Though I don't know anything about his books. He doesn't like women to talk about books. He says they only pretend, even the clever ones. Except, of course, Madame de Stael. He can only say she was ugly, and I don't deny it. But I have about used up Madame de Stael,' she added, dropping into another sigh as soft and light as a child's. Robert was charmed with her, and even Langham smiled. And as Mrs. Darcy adored clever men, ranking them, as the Londoner of her youth had ranked them, only second to persons of birth, she stood among them beaming, becoming more and more whimsical and inconsequent, more and more deliciously incalculable, 
as she expanded. At last she fluttered off, only, however, to come hurrying back with little short scudding steps to implore them all to come to tea with her as soon as possible in the garden that was her special hobby, and in her last new summer-house. "'I build two or three every summer,' she said. "'Now there are twenty-one. Roger laughs at me.' and there was a momentary bitterness in the little eerie face. "'But how can one live without hobbies? That's one. Then I've two more. My album—oh, you will all write in my album, won't you? When I was young, when I was made of honour, and she drew herself up slightly, everybody had albums, even the dear Queen herself. I remember how she made Monsieur Guzot write in it—something quite stupid, after all. Those hobbies, the garden and the album, are quite harmless, aren't they? They hurt nobody, do they?' Her voice dropped a little, with a pathetic expostulating intonation in it, as of one accustomed to be rebuked. "'Let me remind you of a saying of Bacon's,' said Langham, studying her, and softened perforce into benevolence. "'Yes, yes,' said Mrs. Darcy, in a flutter of curiosity. "'God Almighty first planted a garden,' he quoted, "'and indeed it is the purest of all human pleasures.' "'Oh, but how delightful!' cried Mrs. Darcy, clasping her diminutive hands in her thread-gloves. "'You must write that in my album, Mr. Langham, that very sentence. Oh, how clever of you to remember it! What it is to be clever and have a brain! But then I've another hobby.' Here, however, she stopped, hung her head, and looked depressed. Robert, with a little ripple of laughter, begged her to explain. "'No,' she said plaintively, giving a quick, uneasy look at him, as though it occurred to her that it might some day be his pastoral duty to admonish her. "'No, it's wrong. I know it is. Only I can't help it. Never mind. You'll know soon.' And again she turned away, when suddenly Rose attracted her attention, and she stretched out a thin white bird-claw of a hand, and caught the girl's arm. "'There won't be much to amuse you to-morrow, my dear, and there ought to be. You're so pretty.' Rose blushed furiously, and tried to draw her hand away. "'No, no, don't mind, don't mind. I didn't at your age.' "'Well, we'll do our best, but your own party is so charming!' And she looked round the little circle, her gaze stopping specially at Langham before it returned to Rose. "'After all, you will amuse each other.' Was there any malice in the tiny withered creature? Rose, unsympathetic and indifferent as youth commonly is when its own affairs absorb it, had stood coldly outside the group which was making much of the squire's sister. Was it so the strange little visitor revenged herself? At any rate, Rose was left feeling as if someone had pricked her. While Catherine and Ellesmere escorted Mrs. Darcy to the gate, she turned to go in, her head thrown back stag-like, her cheek still burning. Why should it be always open to the old to annoy the young with impunity? Langham watched her mount the first step or two. His eye travelled up the slim figure so instinct with pride and will and something in him suddenly gave way. It was like a man who feels his grip relaxing on some attacking thing he has been holding by the throat. He followed her hastily. "'Must you go in? None of us has paid our respects yet to those floxes in the back garden.' Oh, woman! Flighty woman! An instant before the girl, sore and bruised in every fibre—she only half knew why—was thirsting that this man might somehow offer her his neck, that she might trample on it. He offers it, and the angry instinct wavers, as a man wavers in a wrestling match when his opponent unexpectedly gives ground. She paused. She turned her white throat. 
His eyes upturned met hers. "'The Floxes, did you say?' she asked coolly, redescending the steps. "'Then round here, please.' She led the way. He followed conscious of an utter relaxation of nerve and will, which for the moment had something intoxicating in it. "'There are your floxes,' she said, stopping before a splendid line of plants in full blossom. Her self-respect was whole again. Her spirits rose at a bound. "'I don't know why you admire them so much. They have no scent, and they are only pretty in the lump.' And she broke off a spike of blossom, studied it a little disdainfully, and threw it away. He stood beside her, the southern glow and life of which it was intermittently capable, once more lighting up the strange face. "'Give me leave to enjoy everything countrified more than usual,' he said. "'After this morning it will be so long before I see the true country again.' He looked, smiling, round on the blue and white brilliance of the sky, clear again after a night of rain, on the sloping garden, on the village beyond, on the hedge of sweet peas close beside them, with its blooms, on tiptoe for a flight, with wings of gentle flush her delicate white. "'Oh, Oxford is countrified enough,' she said indifferently, moving down the broad grass-path which divided the garden into two equal portions. "'But I am leaving Oxford at any rate for a year,' he said quietly. "'I am going to London.' Her delicate eyebrows went up. "'To London?' Then, in a tone of mock meekness and sympathy, "'How you will dislike it!' "'Dislike it? Why?' "'Oh, because—' She hesitated, and then laughed, her daring, girlish laugh. "'Because there are so many stupid people in London. The cleverer people are not all picked out like prize apples, as I suppose they are in Oxford.' "'At Oxford?' repeated Langham, with a kind of groan. "'At Oxford? You imagine that Oxford is inhabited only by clever people?' "'I can only judge by what I see,' she said demurely. Every Oxford man always behaves as if he were the cream of the universe. Oh, I don't mean to be rude, she cried, losing for a moment her defiant control over herself, as though afraid of having gone too far. I am not in the least disrespectful, really. When you and Robert talk, Catherine and I feel quite as humble as we ought. The words were hardly out before she could have bitten the tongue that spoke them. He made her feel her indiscretions of Sunday night as she deserved to feel them and now, after three minutes' conversation, she was on the verge of fresh ones. Would she never grow up, never behave like other girls? That word, humble, seemed to burn her memory. Before he could possibly answer, she barred the way by a question as short and dry as possible. "'What are you going to London for?' "'For many reasons,' he said, shrugging his shoulders. "'I have told no one yet, not even Elsmere. And, indeed, I go back to my rooms for a while from here.' But as soon as term begins, I become a Londoner. They reached the gate at the bottom of the garden, and were leaning against it. She was disturbed, conscious, slightly flushed. It struck her as another gaucherie on her part that she should have questioned him as to his plans. What did his life matter to her? He was looking away from her, studying the half-ruined, degraded manor-house spread out below them. Then suddenly he turned. If I could imagine for a moment it would interest you to hear my reasons for leaving Oxford, I could not flatter myself you would see any sense in them. I know that Robert will think them moonshine, nay more, that they will give him pain. He smiled sadly. 
The tone of gentleness, the sudden breach in the man's melancholy reserve, affected the girl beside him for the second time, precisely as they had affected her the first time. The result of twenty-four hours' resentful meditation turned out to be precisely nil. Her breath came fast, her proud look melted, and his quick sense caught the change in an instant. "'Are you tired of Oxford?' the poor child asked him, almost shyly. "'Mortally,' he said, still smiling. "'And what is more important still, Oxford is tired of me. I've been lecturing there for ten years. They've had more than enough of me.' "'Oh, but Robert said—' began Rose impetuously, then stopped, crimson, remembering many things Robert had said. "'That I helped him over a few styles?' returned Langham calmly. "'Yes, there was a time when I was capable of that. There was a time when I could teach, and teach with pleasure.' He paused. Rose could have scourged herself for the tremor she felt creeping over her. Why should it be to her so new and strange a thing that a man, especially a man of these years and this calibre, should confide in her, should speak to her intimately of himself? After all, she said to herself angrily, with a terrified sense of importance, she was a child no longer, though her mother and sisters would treat her as one. "'When we were chatting the other night,' he went on, turning to her again as he stood leaning on the gate, "'do you know what it was struck me most?' His tone had in it the most delicate, the most friendly deference. But Rose flushed furiously. "'The girls are very ready to talk about themselves, I imagine,' she said scornfully. "'No, not at all. Not for a moment. No, but it seemed to me so pathetic, so strange, that anybody should wish for anything so much as you wished for the musician's life.' "'And you never wished for anything?' she cried. "'When Ellesmere was at college,' he said, smiling, "'I believe I wished he would get a first class. "'This year I have certainly wished to say good-bye to St. Anselm's, "'and to turn my back for good and all on my men. "'I can't remember that I have wished for anything else for six years.' She looked at him, perplexed. Was his manner merely languid, or was it from him that the emotion she felt invading herself first started? She tried to shake it off. "'And I am just a bundle of wants,' she said half-mockingly. "'Generally speaking, I am in the condition of being ready to barter all I have for some folly or other, one in the morning, another in the afternoon. What have you to say to such people, Mr. Langham?' Her eyes challenged him magnificently, most out of sheer nervousness. But the face they rested on seemed suddenly to turn to stone before her. The life died out of it. It grew still and rigid. "'Nothing,' he said quietly. Between them and me there is a great gulf fixed. I watch them pass, and I say to myself, There are the living. That is how they look, how they speak. Realise once for all that you have nothing to do with them. Life is theirs, belongs to them. You are already outside it. Go your way and be a spectre among the active and the happy no longer. He leant his back against the gate. Did he see her? Was he conscious of her at all in this rare impulse of speech which had suddenly overtaken one of the most withdrawn and silent of human beings? All her airs dropped off her. A kind of fright seized her, and involuntarily she laid her hand on his arm. "'Don't, don't, Mr. Langham. Oh, don't say such things. Why should you be so unhappy? Why should you talk so? Can no one do anything? Why do you live so much alone? Is there no one you care about?' He turned. What a vision! His artistic sense absorbed it in an instant, the beautiful, tremulous lip, the drawn, white brow. 
For a moment he drank in the pity, the emotion of those eyes. Then a movement of such self-scorn as even he had never felt swept through him. He gently moved away. Her hand dropped. "'Miss Laban,' he said, gazing at her, his olive face singularly pale, "'don't waste your pity on me, for heaven's sake. Some madness made me behave as I did just now. Years ago the same sort of idiocy betrayed me to your brother. Never before or since. I ask your pardon, humbly.' and his tone seemed to scorch her, that this second fit of ranting should have seized me in your presence. But he could not keep it up. The inner upheaval had gone too far. He stopped and looked at her, piteously, the features quivering. It was as though the man's whole nature had for the moment broken up, become disorganised. She could not bear it. Some ghastly infirmity seemed to have been laid bare to her. She held out both her hands. Swiftly he caught them, stooped, kissed them, let them go. It was an extraordinary scene, to both a kind of lifetime. Then he gathered himself together by a mighty effort. "'That was adorable of you,' he said with a long breath. "'But I stole it. I despise myself. Why should you pity me? What is there to pity me for? My troubles, such as I have, are of my own making. Every one.' and he laid a sort of vindictive emphasis on the words. The tears of excitement were in her eyes. "'Won't you let me be your friend?' she said, trembling with a kind of reproach. "'I thought, the other night, we were to be friends. Won't you tell me?' "'More of yourself,' her eyes said, but her voice failed her. And as for him, as he gazed at her, all the accidents of circumstance, of individual character, seemed to drop from her. He forgot the difference of years. He saw her no longer as she was, a girl hardly out of the schoolroom, vain, ambitious, dangerously responsive, on whose crude romantic sense he was wantonly playing. She was to him pure beauty, pure woman. For one tumultuous moment the cold critical instinct, which had been for years draining his life of all its natural energies, was powerless. It was sweet to yield, to speak, as it had never been sweet before. So, leaning over the gate, he told her the story of his life, of his cramped childhood and youth, of his brief moment of happiness and success at college, of his first attempts to make himself a power among younger men, of the gradual dismal failure of all his efforts, the dying down of desire and ambition. From the general narrative there stood out little pictures of individual persons or scenes, clear-cut and masterly, of his father, the Gainsborough churchwarden, of his methodistical mother, who had all her life lamented her own beauty as a special snare of Satan, and who since her husband's death had refused to see her son on the ground that his opinions had vexed his father, of his first ardent worship of knowledge and passion to communicate it, and of the first intuitions in lecture, face to face with an undergraduate, alone in college rooms, sometimes alone on alpine heights, of something cold, impotent and baffling in himself, which was to stand for ever between him and action, between him and human affection. The growth of the critical pessimist sense which laid the axe to the root of enthusiasm after enthusiasm, friendship after friendship, which made other men feel him inhuman, intangible, a skeleton of the feast, and the persistence through it all of a kind of hunger for life and its satisfactions, 
which the will was more and more powerless to satisfy. All these Langham put into words with an extraordinary magic and delicacy of phrase. There was something in him which found a kind of pleasure in the long analysis, which took pains that it should be infinitely well done. Rose followed him breathlessly. If she had known more of literature, she would have realised that she was witnessing a masterly dissection of one of those many morbid growths of which our nineteenth-century psychology is full. But she was anything but literary, and she could not analyse her excitement. The man's physical charm, his melancholy, the intensity of what he said, affected, unsteadied her, as music was apt to affect her. And through it all there was the strange girlish pride that this should have befallen her, a first crude intoxicating scent of the power over human lives which was to be hers, mingled with a desperate anxiety to be equal to the occasion, to play her part well. "'So you see,' said Langham at last, with a great effort to do him justice, to climb back onto some ordinary level of conversation, "'all these transcendentalisms apart, I'm about the most unfit man in the world for a college tutor.' The undergraduates regard me as a shilly-shallying pedant. On my part, he added dryly, I am not slow to retaliate. Every term I live I find the young man a less interesting animal. I regard the whole university system as a wretched sham. Knowledge. It has no more to do with knowledge than my boots. And for one curious instant he looked out over the village, his fastidious scholar's soul absorbed by some intellectual irritation, of which Rose understood absolutely nothing. She stood bewildered, silent, longing childishly to speak, to influence him, but not knowing what cue to take. And then, he went on presently, was the strange being speaking to her? So long as I stay there, worrying of those about me and eating my own heart out, I am cut off from the only life that might be mine, that I might find the strength to live. The words were low and deliberate. After his moment of passionate speech and hers of passionate sympathy, she began to feel strangely remote from him. "'Do you mean the life of the student?' she asked him, after a pause, timidly. Her voice recalled him. He turned and smiled at her. "'Of the dreamer, rather.' And as her eyes still questioned, as he was still moved by the spell of her responsiveness, he let the new wave of feeling break in words. Vaguely at first, and then with a growing flame and force, he felt to describe to her what the life of thought may be to the thinker, and those marvellous moments which belong to that life when the mind which has divorced itself from desire and sense sees spread out before it the vast realms of knowledge, and feels itself close to the secret springs and sources of being. And as he spoke, his language took an ampler turn, the element of smallness which attaches to all mere personal complaint vanished. His words flowed, became eloquent, inspired, till the bewildered child beside him, warm through and through as she was with youth and passion, felt for an instant by sheer fascinated sympathy the cold spell, the ineffable prestige of the thinker's voluntary death in life. But only for an instant. Then the natural sense of chill smote her to the heart. "'You make me shiver,' she cried, interrupting him. "'Have those strange things—I don't understand them—made you happy? Can they make anyone happy? Oh, no, no!' 
Happiness is to be got from living, seeing, experiencing, making friends, enjoying nature. Look at the world, Mr. Langham, she said, with bright cheeks, smiling at her own magniloquence, her hand waving over the view before them. What has it done that you should hate it so? If you can't put up with people, you might love nature. I, I can't be content with nature because I want some life first. Up in Windale there is too much nature, not enough life. But if I had got through life, if it had disappointed me, then I should love nature. I keep saying to the mountains at home, not now, not now, I want something else. But afterwards, if I can't get it, or if I get too much of it, why then I will love you, live with you. You are my second string, my reserve. You, and art, and poetry. But everything depends on feeling, he said softly, but lightly, as though to keep the conversation from slipping back into those vague depths it had emerged from. And if one has forgotten how to feel, if when one sees or hears something beautiful that used to stir one, one can only say, I remember it moved me once. If feeling dies, like life, like physical force, but prematurely, long before the rest of the man? She gave a long, quivering sigh of passionate antagonism. Oh, I cannot imagine it, she cried. I shall feel to my last hour. Then after a pause, in another tone, But, Mr. Langham, you say music excites you. Wagner excites you. Yes, a sort of strange second life I can still get out of music, he admitted, smiling. Well, then, and she looked at him persuasively, why not give yourself up to music? It is so easy, so little trouble to oneself. It just takes you and carries you away. Then, for the first time, Langham became conscious, probably through these admonitions of hers, that the situation had absurdity in it. It is not my métier, he said hastily. The self that enjoys music is an outer self, and can only bear with it for a short time. No, Miss Laban, I shall leave Oxford, the college will sing a te deum, I shall settle down in London, I shall keep a big book going, and cheat the ears after all, I suppose, as well as most people. And you will know, you will remember, she said, faltering, reddening, her womanliness forcing the words out of her, that you have friends, Robert, my sister, all of us. He faced her with a little quick movement, and as their eyes met, each was struck once more with the personal beauty of the other. His eyes shone, their black depths seemed all tenderness. "'I will never forget this visit, this garden, this hour,' he said slowly, and they stood looking at each other. Rose felt herself swept off her feet into a world of tragic, mysterious emotion. She all but put her hand into his again, asking him childishly to hope to be consoled. But the maidenly impulse restrained her, and once more he leant on the gate, burying his face in his hands. Suddenly he felt himself utterly tired, relaxed. Strong, nervous reaction set in. What had all this scene, this tragedy, been about? And then in another instant was that sense of the ridiculous again clamouring to be heard. He, the man of thirty-five, confessing himself, making a tragic scene, playing Manfred or Cain to this adorable half-fledged creature whom he had known five days? Supposing Ellesmere had been there to hear, Ellesmere with his sane eye, his laugh. As he leant over the gate he found himself quivering with impatience to be away, by himself, out of reach, the critic in him making the most bitter remorseless mock of all these heroics and despairs the other self had been indulging in. 
but for the life of him he could not find a word to say, a move to make. He stood hesitating, gauche as usual. "'Do you know, Mr. Langham,' said Rose lightly by his side, "'that there is no time at all left for you to give me good advice in? That is an obligation still hanging over you. I don't mean to release you from it, but if I don't go in now and finish the covering of those library books, the youth of Muirwell will be left without any literature till heaven knows when.' He could have blessed her for the tone, for the escape into common mundanity. "'Hang literature! Hang the parish library!' he said with a laugh as he moved after her. Yet his real inner feeling towards that parish library was one of infinite friendliness. "'Here are these men of letters,' she said scornfully. But she was happy. There was a glow on her cheek. A bramble caught her dress. She stopped and laid her white hands to it, but in vain. He knelt in an instant, and between them they wrenched it away, but not till those soft, slim fingers had several times felt the neighbourhood of his brown ones, until there had flown through and through him once more, as she stooped over him, the consciousness that she was young, that she was beautiful, that she had pitied him so sweetly, that they were alone. "'Rose!' It was Catherine calling, Catherine who stood at the end of the grass-path, with eyes all indignation and alarm. Langham rose quickly from the ground. He felt as though the gods had saved him, or damned him. Which? End of Book Two, Chapter Sixteen